Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Cardiz Gardner-Glaser and TNS host, Victoria Santos. Welcome. I'm Kira Epstein. I'm the program coordinator at the New School at Commonweal. And I'm here today with Victoria Santos, a new host at the New School, to welcome you to this conversation with Satterberg Foundation's C.C. Gardner-Gleeser about reparative philanthropy. A few words about our host, our new host, Victoria Santos, because we're so pleased to have her with us. Victoria came to Commonweal when she helped to facilitate our 2017 fall gathering, and she just stayed connected to Commonweal ever since. Last year, she officially joined our staff and founded her own program, the Center for Healing and Liberation. Victoria has trained in the fields of psychology, conflict resolution, meditation, ritual, and embodied practice. Uh, and for 10 years, Victoria assisted Sabonfu Somme in leading grief rituals according to the Degara traditions of Burkina Faso. Victoria has been an incredible addition to the Commonwealth community, and we're so pleased she's joined us to host our Money as Medicine series at the New School. Victoria Santos and Cece Gardner-Glaser, welcome to the New School at Commonweal. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kira. It is such a pleasure to be here and to um, have Cece be part of this conversation, and um, I'm just delighted. I will introduce Cece. Um, and, and I'm calling her Cece at some of her friends and how she goes by, but as she mentioned before, Kara, um, is Cece's full name is Cardiz Gardner Glazier, and she is an advocate for social impact and social justice work. She is the first director of programs and strategic initiative at Satterberg Foundation, whose mission focuses on promoting a just society in a sustainable environment. She currently serves as a leader on the board of the Andrews Family Fund, the Charlotte Martin Foundation and Philanthropy Northwest. Cece founded Black Ivy Manor, which provides funding and other opportunities for black scholars, artists, and social justice advocates to develop their craft and their voice. Cece earned her bachelor's degree in African-American studies from Yale University and in MED in education administration from Seattle University. Welcome, Cece. It is such a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you so much for having me, Victoria. Super excited to be here today. Me too, me too, especially after the amazing experience that you hosted for the past two days, which we're going to get into. But before we go there, I want to ask you, Cece, on whose shoulders are you standing on? The ancestors. Um, I mean, everyone that has come before me. Um, without them, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here. My mother, my grandmother their mothers, um, fathers too, but the women, that the force of women, power, um, that's, those are the shoulders I, I stand on. Mm, thank you, Cece. And your name, your name is so unique. Can you tell me a little bit about the story about your name, the Cardiz? 
Oh my gosh, yes. Um, so it's um, CR it is. It's um, the strangest name. And my mother is one of the youngest of six. And um, it was her mother's best friend growing up. And, um, and her name um, was the artist and there was a Cardis as well. Mm. So uh, my grandmother was like, when she had her kids, oh, you all should name your kids this, you know, this special name of my best friend growing up. But my mom's name was Carla. My aunt's name is Gloria. It's like everyone had all of these nice, regular names. And then, um, every, you know, my uncles and aunts had children and they named their kids regular names like Paul, Sean, Tara, <laughs> you know. And, um, and then um, my, my grandmother passed and I was like the next grandchild born. And for whatever reason, my mom got the idea, let's use that name that no one's ever wanted to use. Um, and we've had a million chances to use. Yes, let's use it on this baby. Um, so that's where the name came from. And my middle name is Estelle. So imagine if growing up as a little girl and your name is the artist Estelle. Oh um, and I was, and Estelle was um, uh, my mom's um, aunt. Um, everyone called her Coco. Um, but so even still now, I know when I'm in trouble or so I don't like to use the artist like, professionally. Um, I always want everyone to know that Cece is the artist, but sometimes when folks call me that, I think I'm in trouble. Um, and it, I have some some trauma. So I'm like, uh-oh, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Thank you for telling that story. You know, it's um, it's interesting because this when you say see artist, it's almost like this artist in there you know, it's it's really, it's, it's a big name. It's a big name and you're growing into it. It's beautiful. So you're not in trouble. You're making good trouble, girl. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I always, if I'm at, a, at an event or something and there's people I don't like or I don't want to be connected to, that's when I use the artist because I know they can't say it. They're like, wait, what is it? And it's just fun to watch folks try to figure it out. And <laughs> So your name is protecting you too, huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, when I was introducing your bio, in it, it said that you are um, a social uh, impact, that you're doing social impact work, and that you're also social justice work. And, um, you know, when we define social justice, there's many different words that people use, but we, also, we it, within that encompass like equal rights, equal opportunities, and equal treatment. Can you tell, uh, tell us a little bit more about why social justice is important to you? Yes, um, I think I'm someone that is, I'm who I am because of who I belong to, my family, my community, and without that, I wouldn't be here. Um, so social justice to me is how do we continue to kind of move all of these gifts forward? And so I don't, so, there's a lot of wrongs that need to be righted in this country. Um, And we don't get to just kind of be in this space and be like, here we are, we did it all by ourselves and this is a great place. And without acknowledging the attempted genocide of indigenous folks, the stolen land and the free labor on the backs of black bodies. And for me, I carry that in my body and I carry that into every room I'm in along with the community that I come from. Um, because we aren't in so many of these spaces. 
And we always have to think about everyone as a whole. Like we're not going into these spaces as individuals. There's stories, there's histories um, that we're carrying with us. And the social justice work for me is a requirement um, in any space that I'm in. And this is about making some reparations, some repair. We need to make some restoration and we need to heal. And that to me is the core central part of the work and the social justice piece. So in philanthropy, it, it's, uh, you know, meaning returning resources. So those because of the theft, the wage theft, the free labor, like all of those things that we just didn't have access to. Um, it, it's And so my role in philanthropy is to facilitate the return of the resources and being very clear about that. And to me, that is a just society. Mm, thank you so much. This is so beautiful. Anyway, um, now, you, you you mentioned philanthropy and, you know, you work for Staderberg Foundation and you were the you're like the first person in program, right? The first first program director at Satterberg. Like, how did that happen? How did that come about? Yeah, when I came in five years ago, I was a program officer, and the Satterberg Foundation has been around about 30 years, 31 years, um, but it was family-run for the first 20, 23 years, I would say, and then staff just started being hired eight years ago. So the first staff member has been there eight years, number two and number three have been there seven years, and then I was the fourth person, and I've been there five years. So that's still pretty, pretty new. And then as just we were looking at what is the work that I'm really doing outside of a program officer and some of the different things like the Seattle Equity Summit um, that you participated in, Victoria, and um, a lot of the other community things that we do, um, we were trying to find space for that. So along with programming and then strategic initiatives is, is where we landed and so it was a new position that was created and I applied for it <laughs> and everything and um, and was fortunate to be named the director of program. So it's a pretty cool opportunity to kind of shape what, you know, what this role looks like. Yeah, yeah. I mean, OK, I, I do want to talk about the summit because that's just was off the chain. OK, but I also like I want to talk to you. I want I don't want to get too ahead of myself in all of this conversation because the other piece is that at, you know through your initiatives and in, in direction there's there's an initiative to support Black and Indigenous people, um, and so I want to hear about both of those things. So let's start with the summit first of all because that's right in the programming area. Um, the this is a, this is the third year that you've been doing it, correct? Mm -hmm. So, but I want, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about like what was um, the impetus of both the previous years, but also of this year. Yes. Yes. Um, so when we originally thought of this, this had been something I had been working on since probably 2015, actually. Mm -hmm. And I was doing it with some alums from Yale and with other, uh, some alums that worked in philanthropy. So whether at Gates Foundation or other local foundations, and we were trying to kind of shape the summit. And then every time I'd have a meeting, it was like, oh, and then we could do this. And we could, and I was like, oh no, now that's a different event. Like that sounds amazing, but that's not what I want to do. So then I would get new partners and the same thing kept happening over and over. And I remember I was just having the conversation 
with Sarah, the executive director at Satterberg. And she's like, oh, well, maybe we can partner on it. And I was like, okay, but this is like the shape The what I wanted was a space where folks could come together from different sectors and, and spend a day learning from each other. Because so often, you know, we go to conferences or we go to spaces and it's like a philanthropy conference or it's a nonprofit or it's, you know, it's around specific things. It's, you know, um, like corporate and nonprofit government. It's all these different spaces. So we're all just talking to each other when we really need to talk cross-sector and figure out how we can come up with some of the solutions together. Because so many folks say they want to work on equity and do inclusion and diversity work, but no one's actually talking about it across the board. And that's kind of where, what we need to do. So the first year, um, so Satterberg came on as a partner, Fred Hutchinson, Hutchinson um, in Seattle, Cancer Research was a partner, and TAP. Um, in Seattle was a partner. And um, we focused on economic security, housing, and education in Seattle. So that was a lot of kind of what was happening at the time. Last year, we focused on BIPOC women um, and civic engagement. So women running for office, which Seattle um, in 2020 had a large number of Black women running for office and that one. Um, so, so really encouraging that and just the convening of bringing folks together. And I think people underestimate the power of what we can do when we come together and we share our stories, we share space with one another. It, it heals and it um, just builds something in you and inspires where folks have, that went to the first summit, they're like, I decided to leave my job after the, you know, like I don't work there anymore. I changed this or I'm running for office or I created a path. And this year, we always have had art elements in the summit from the first year. We have spoken word, we, you know, in the beginning and the end. And uh, I mean, every year we infuse it. And this year, we, after seeing the movements of the uprisings of 2020, we really thought about we need to center art. Like art is important and art is life. And it's not an afterthought. It's not, these aren't just after-school programs. These are change-making. Like, movement doesn't happen without art. So if you think of, you know, like, marches and things like that, there are signs. There's recognizable signs from, like, the Women's March. Um, everyone knows the Muslim women, the African-American young lady, and um, the Latino woman on, on these... Um, or that people were carrying around. So, and that's art. Or um, there's music that comes out of marches and protests. And so it's like, we have to recognize that. Like art is, is movement and art is out here changing hearts and minds and policies in some ways. So we wanted to raise those voices up, amplify them and have an opportunity to talk about what art means to so many different people. This year, we partnered with Detroit, um, and we had not partnered with another city before because um, Satterberg is based in Seattle, but I live in Detroit. So it was a great way to create a new partnership. Um, but I think the biggest, and we need funders to fund art because um, they just, it's like, oh, that's an after school program. I want to fund something with more impact over it. And it's like, no, art is changing lives. So um, that's how we ended up on that theme. and. I mean, you were there. It was it was a great choice. It was amazing. <laughs> amazing. I know it was recorded. Is it going to be available? It is. It'll be available in a couple of weeks. 
someplace. Uh, I'm guessing on our website. Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but it'll get out there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Definitely at least the link in your website. <laughs> <Just that Yes. laughs> That's fantastic. And it's also a way of, um, you know, uplifting and also advocating, right? That you do a lot of advocacy um, for the things that you're, that you care about, the things that the foundation is supporting. And, and you're also partnering with a lot of different organizations and foundation. And I, I do love the cross sector um, work and that's, that's really beautiful. Um, to, to see, see flowers to you, girl, flowers to you. <laughs> I just, I was, the energy was so contagious. It was beautiful. So thank you for that. It was fun. We danced. (laughs) Yes. Oh my God. That dancing at the end. Mm. Yes. Yes. We showed up. All right. Um, Let's see. I want to, let's take it a little bit in a different direction with, and now let's talk about um, the commitment that, Okay, this I was going to say the commitment of the funds that Satterberg has made, right, to BIPOC. But before we get there, I kind of remember a story, actually, that you used to work for the family. <laughs> yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, my gosh. And it, yeah, this is so, uh, it's beyond a coincidence. Um, so, so after being at Tiderberg for a while, one of the board members came in with a Kenworth calendar and I was like, oh my gosh, we used to get these when I worked at Kenworth Trucking, um, like for the holidays. And then it was then that we made the connection that Satterberg Foundation is, um, connected to Kenworth Trucking, um, and Car. And I just, and so for a couple of years, I would always, you know, when I introduced myself or it was fun fact, I was like, oh, I was a fiberglass specialist and material handler at Kenworth Trucking Company. And I happened to work at a foundation that's returning resources from that wealth. And, um, and recently this year, I had a conversation with someone and they were like, wait, pause. Um, this isn't just a fun fact. You just kind of are breezing right past this, this is significant. And let's spend some time here and think about what that looks like. And then I just, I've been thinking about it ever since that conversation. And my father worked at Kenworth as well. So he was there 24 years. And um, it was his job when he left the service and he was a mechanic and we moved from North Carolina back to Seattle. And that was the job that he had for 24 years. And he was laid off. And um, at 54 years old, and it's like, what is, you know, a black man with just a high school diploma supposed to do after that? So we talked through it because I called my father after that conversation. And I was like, Daddy, can we talk about like what that experience was like? And he was just like, well, I couldn't access my retirement because I wasn't old enough. I had a, I went to truck driving school and I thought I build trucks. Maybe I should drive them. And he's like, I tried that, but I can't, I couldn't do it. It's just too rigorous um, on the body. And um, he, uh, he just, he's like, I can't do it. So he didn't make it a year doing that. And then he got a job at Boeing and um, was able to stay at Boeing for five years and retire from there. And by that time, Kenworth um, were giving people the opportunity to cash out their retirement benefits or just take the monthly disbursement. And and he's like, I cashed out. You know, he's like, I know it's less money for the company, but he's like, I'm black. I ain't gonna live forever anyway. So give me my money now. 
And um, and then just talking to him about the layoffs he watched, and I was laid off from there too after being there just two years. And um, so thinking about that experience and how he said, he's like, you know, whenever profits dropped, everyone on the plant floor, that's where the layoffs happened, but the layoffs didn't happen upstairs. Um, so he just saw so many people like, Families go through so so much turmoil around losing a job, um, around you know losing their homes and and things like that um, because the layoffs were frequent and it just they just went right down the list. And then I I just was thinking about when I worked there. I worked second shift from like three to midnight, um, and uh, we had to produce thirty two trucks a day. So coming in second shift, there were any issues or anything in the first shift couldn't do their 16 trucks in second shift had to, you know, make up that time. So at the end of the day, we still need to do 32 trucks. So just thinking about it that intently and going and crossing off truck number 160527, you know, on a certain date and, um, and then tying that back to where I am right now. Like, I don't know how many folks in philanthropy can actually say that they literally, with their bare hands, played a role in building the wealth of, of these funds. And that, it's like when I, when I really, th- when I remember what it was like to sand, what it was like to cut fiberglass and mix it and repair the hood of a truck, um, that, is, that is so powerful to me um, to have that direct link. Um, it's crazy. Like, how? Where does that happen? At? <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm getting chills, and I'm almost feeling like tears wanting to come up as you're saying this story. Because, you know, when we think about the the title of this of this um, talk, you know, we talk about reparative philanthropy. You know, and then to have you both be contributing, you and your family, and you know, and and the thing, the reality is that it's many African-Americans, right, and indigenous people and other people of color that helped to build the wealth of this country and in this particular yes. of this foundation, right? And now here you are in a position of distributing the wealth back, right? Um, tell me a little bit more about the initiative um, that Satterberg launched and, and, and also what your hopes are in terms of... Yes. Yeah, um, last year, you know, like like many foundations and many companies, um, you know, we made a statement, and with that, we made a commitment. Um, the board made a commitment to spend an additional fifty million dollars over the next ten years um, to center Black and Indigenous work um, in in all of its forms. Um, and and right now, I mean, Satterberg for the longest time has always spent above the minimum 5%, um, usually more around 10%. And now with this additional um, 5 million a year, it's it's going to go, um, you know, a little higher. Maybe it's capping at 15% this year or about 12 or 13%. It just depends. But um, the, so the work around that, we call, call this fund um, the Reparative Action Fund. And um, some folks were like, well, what about reparations? And I'm like, well, we're a funder and we, we don't control all these systems. 
So reparations, we have to change the systems, you know, um, and that's not our role right now, but what we can do is move the resources, facilitate the return of these resources. Um, so what, what we've been doing is we're working with um, Will Portery, a consultant, um, and we are just looking at who are the movement builders, the power builders, um, infrastructure organizers, like who are the folks out there doing that work? And we're doing this in a way like where we're not asking folks to apply for the funding. We are going out and finding the organizations that we know are already doing the work. So oftentimes when I see the, the funds returning, it's um, not for like the work that you're going to do. It's for the work that you've already done and looking at it as a lens that this is already your money anyway. You, you should have access to this money, but wanting to do things like not just fund programs or, or, or fund organizations, but how can we fund folks to be able to purchase land? Like there's a lot of folks out here trying to purchase killing space uh, for their people, for their community, uh, just land or building um, for the work that they're doing and the people they're serving. So I see us moving the funds in that way as well. So not just movement building and power building, but thinking about the generational wealth and how do we just move it so that we can actually own our own land since we never got our 40 acres or, you know, the attempted genocide on the stolen land. How do we just get that land back? So, so thinking about land reclamation, healing and rest, um, and restoration is a big piece of this as well. So how can we fund sabbaticals? And how can we fund individuals to just take a break, take a nap? Because um, there's this belief that foundations can't fund individuals, and you actually can. It's something you have to do with an attorney or some form you have to fill out, but you actually can fund individuals. And we need to figure out how to do that because this is... And, and this isn't about reporting, like we, sh we shouldn't be doing any reporting as a part of this reparative action fund, besides just how much money did we distribute? Because in the spirit of reparations and repair, we're moving the money to you. And that's the end of it. Like, we're not going to force you to be in relationship with us. Um, we're approaching it. Many of the calls we have with folks um, where they we schedule the call and they get on and they're telling us all their programs. And, what, and we're like, wait, let me stop you right there. Um, this isn't a call for you to pitch us. Like, we already want to fund you. This is a call for us to pitch ourselves as, do you even want to partner with us? You know, and, and trying to get over the idea, all money's not good money. And maybe our stuff's not together enough for you to even want to receive dollars from us. Like, how are we really showing up? Um, so we have to make sure that we're worthy of you to, to take these dollars from us. And that's really what the call is about. We want to tell you about what we're doing, what we're thinking, um, and, and in hopes that you'll, you'll partner with us and then we'll move forward from that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow, beautiful, amazing work. Have you run into some challenges with other funders around this vision or? Um, definitely. I mean, I would say there's the gaslighting that happens um, where I've only been in philanthropy five years. And, and I came into this intentionally because I found that there weren't folks from community in the space. 
And uh, and it was always like if I was on a grant committee or something, I'm like, why can't we just do this? And it's like, oh, well, you just don't get it. Um, you don't understand like how this works. And then once I finally got in, it's still a lot of those conversations. They're like, well, how do you choose who, who gets the money? Like, how do you know what's a good grant and what's a bad grant? And I'm like, what do you mean? Tell me what you think a bad grant is. Um, but they're like, how will you know the impact? Like, if you give unrestricted funding, which is what Satterberg does um, in multi-year funding, they're like, if it's unrestricted, how do you measure the work? I'm like, why do you need to measure the work? Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, how do you know it's working? Why do we need to know it's working? Our job is to facilitate the return of these resources. Who's asking you what you spent your money on? You know, and and I think especially now with kind of the rise of this diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation that everyone is having, or everyone wants to do this training, and so now funders are like judging nonprofits. Like, what does your board look like? You don't have enough people of color. You don't have enough people of color on your staff. And then, what if nonprofits started asking funders those same questions? (laughs) Why why does your board look all white? What is why is your staff look like this or you know, because how are you judging folks on the things that you aren't even doing and your stuff's not even tight? You're listening to a TNS conversation with Cardiz Gardner Glazer and host Victoria Santos. So, and how are you making decisions about what folks should measure when you're not even from that community? You don't know what works and what doesn't work. So, why, you know, so this whole idea that philanthropy has sold us of like, we need an LOI, we need a site visit, we need an application, then we need reports, we need 30 page reports, like the report has to equal kind of, if this is $100,000, then we might need a 100,000 page report on the work that you've done. Or, and I'm like, why? Why do you need that? And they're like, well... Because that's what you do. It's like, no, you, you just don't get it. Or when I ask other funders about their spending, when they stay at 5%, I'm like, why don't you spend more? And they're like, well, you just don't get it. I'm like, I, I get it. You know, and then I have to start asking, I'm like, wait, am I, am I missing something? I thought our job here was to move money um, and get some impact. But when folks want to hoard the wealth, and because everyone's been conditioned to believe that philanthropy is like this really high brow, you have to be super smart to do it. And, and that's what I thought because I couldn't get in for so long. And then I get in and the folks that I see on the other side of that door, I'm not with the best and brightest. I, I thought I would be uh, after, you know, with all the challenges it took to get in. I'm like, where is it? exceptional people. I thought that's who was going to be here mm-hmm. when I got here. And... Wow. You're learning so much. <laughs> I mean, one of the things I really appreciate about UCC is that you really have like just taking the curtains off, right? And you're just like, guys, look behind the curtains. <laughs> you know, this is... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> These are just regular people maintaining <laughs> institutions, you know. Yes, just regular people. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah, yeah. I think you and Edgar are like right there together. Edgar Villanueva, that's what I mean. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, but you, you you did mention a couple of things in those stories. One is about um the importance of multi-year funding, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah. The importance of multi-year funding and also um, re- asking and, and releasing more than just 10%, you know, even like 8% or 5%, but releasing more, especially, you know, during this time, people are like, well, you know, we have to save our funds for the rainy day. Well, if we're not having a rainy day now, I don't know what's happening. Yeah. We're flooding. We're flooding right now. It's bad out here. It's like we have to move the money now. And I know like, you know, we have this $50 million commitment over 10 years and it's like a minimum of $5 million a year. And I was thinking about it. And as I talked to folks in community and organizers out here doing the work and the things they were able to do um, during the summer of 2020, they built so much momentum and we have to keep it up. And when I see like the five, $5 million additional a year that we can move, I'm like, can we move 10 million this year and 10 million next year? Because that's where it's going to make the difference. Like, if we don't pour the capital into these movements right now, then they won't be able to sustain them. Then we can come back later and then put in more money. But they've already had a lot of stop gaps, you know, it's like hurry and stop, hurry and stop because of the funding. And you just want to be able to get them enough funding um, for five years or longer. So that they can actually just build the infrastructure and do the work. And that's when the real change and, and movement is going to happen. But we can't just keep, because we feel sad this year because of the murders that constantly happen. So really trying to figure out, too, with funders and just with everyone, like, what's the urgency? Mm-hmm. You know, they've been murdering Black folks for hundreds of years since, since they kidnapped and, and brought us over here. And now all of a sudden we want to write a statement on it when George Floyd has been murdered. I don't, this has been happening. So now that you're paying attention, I want to build something sustainable and not just because you feel sad on Friday. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we've been feeling sad for a long time. Um, are there, I mean, you're, you're currently sitting on the board, on, a couple of boards, philanthropic organizations boards, um, and you're also moving in a lot of different, you know, spaces around, you know, philanthropy. Are there other foundations out there that you're feeling like really are really taking on some of these issues that you really support? Yes, um, I would say a group health foundation for sure. They have showed up for community long-term funding, unrestricted funding, um, yeah, multi-year. And there's someone we will always, and and like we have a great relationship where they'll reach out to us and introduce us to organizations we may not know of. And then we also, it's reciprocal and we can do the same. Hey, we're funding this org. You know, we want to introduce them to you. Um, so that's been really, really good. Um, I would say um, the Certain Foundation and Andrus Family Fund has has really been doing a lot of change and really believe in social justice, um, particularly um, Andrew's Family Fund. Um, one second. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, okay, I'm back. Sorry. <laughs> no, no apology. Was that your son or your daughter? Um, no, grown-ups. <laughs> one more time. Everybody yeah. time, I hear you. Um, so yeah, so you have some 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 um, colleagues. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's it's uh, it's very heartwarming to hear um, the way that you um, 
envision the work and money and moving things because, you know, a lot of the stories and the narratives that we've been hearing a lot right now is how these um, billionaires have accumulated so much money during this time. And people are just in, are suffering and there's just so much need, right? And, and you think even, even like within your, within the commitment that Satterberg has made, it still is a very small foundation in, in relation to some of the others, you know, that were, that just have, billions of you know uh, in their in their portfolio um so so it's it's good to see that you have colleagues that are like binding together and trying to move this work forward but what what do you have any if you let's just take a moment here and that interruption was perfect because if we just take a moment and you had access to some people into uh foundations that are like in the billions of dollars like what would be your hope Oh my gosh. I mean, so many things. And I think the key, like, even when I think about not just investing in nonprofits led by Black and Indigenous folks, uh, but small businesses, um, a lot of the work that we do at Satterberg, so we have a lens, an equity lens that we do our grant making through. And then that lens extends itself to who we hire as consultants, who the vendors we work with, so they tend to be small organizations, um, women-owned businesses, um, BIPOC folk, um, you know, whether it's a photographer or a caterer or um, an event planner. Um, but we always make sure we're centering community. And the thing that I continue to notice is people have a lot of plans to help entrepreneurs, small business owners, like start their business but no one really gives them the capital. So, you know, and I think sometimes when we're partnering with these smaller businesses, um, you know, they, they can't qualify for a lot of like the PPP loans. They don't have capacity or access to an attorney to complete the applications and all the paperwork needed. They don't have the capital. So if I'm partnering with someone, things within our system move very slow um, as far as like even just getting an invoice to to payment. Um, but for a lot of, because of the organizations that we choose to partner with, they need to pay their folks. They need to pay their staff. So they can't wait three weeks for the invoice and the account, you know, for the process, for the check request process. Mm -hmm. So how do we improve our processes? But what could also kind of take some of that burden off is if we actually invested in small businesses beyond just we have these ideas to help start all these businesses, but then folks don't give these um, smaller organizations the capital that they need to succeed beyond. So it's like they're doing a job. That, and, you know, and I would love for like folks to fund even just the exploration of new ideas and innovation. We don't fund that enough. And I think, you know, there's venture capitalists that'll fund like folks in the tech world, like I have this crazy idea, I want to try it. And then it's like millions of dollars and then it doesn't work. And they're like, oh, maybe I should try this. And then millions of dollars again, right? And then for us, we don't get that kind of capital to even, how do I just go in a corner and think, get three friends and let's just throw out all the crazy ideas and try it and actually have money to eat at the same time? Or am I constantly chasing projects? Um, and doing the projects that don't align with me because I need to take care of my staff, my team. Yeah, yeah. It's real. It's real. Cece, you know, your perspective is so um, it's so refreshing 
in the philanthropic world, but there's very few, very few women of color, people of color in general in the philanthropic arena. And even in the nonprofit sector, which is where I sit, even like when I look at development, um, you know, in the development sector, there's very mm-hmm. few, like I recently I, I was in helping an organization interview for a deputy position and there was a woman of color that came in and had all this experience in development and fundraising. I was like, oh my God, you know, get hire this person. Or, you know, if you don't, I know a couple of other people that can hire this person, you know? And so how do, how do we increase like assets in the pipeline so that other uh, foundations can have people of color representing because decisions are being made in these rooms and these boardrooms without the input of, you know, someone that actually knows, like you're saying, someone from community, you used to work, you know, in, in the community you used to work for TAF, right? The, uh, mm-hmm. Seattle, working with youth and education. And, and then you moved into this role mm-hmm. so you had already, and you did a lot of work in community. So you already had like a, a sense of the community needs and that could inform the way you're distributing resources. But how, what can foundations do to help increase the pipeline? Hire, hire folks with lived experience. Like that's the main thing. Like stop fooling yourself and thinking that philanthropy is this really hard, really real thing with all of these rules and, or like it's hard to learn, you know, because also often they're like, and must have, you know, you look at the job descriptions, must have 10 years of experience in philanthropy. And I'm like, my grandmother, you know, I always use the example of my grandmother that used to send the birthday cards to all of the grandkids. And she would send $5 or she would send a Barnes and Noble gift card for like $10. And she would just buy a bunch of them at a time and just send everything out clockwork. And I remember my kids uh, being who they are, like, Gigi, can we just get the five dollars? Because I don't always want to go to Barnes and Noble. You know, I have enough books. I want to buy candy. And she's like, you know what? Whatever. Um, everybody just get the five dollars now because I don't need to be going to Barnes and Noble to buy any cards anyway. So then she just sends five dollars. And I'm like, my grandmother did philanthropy in a way that was like she listened to her folks. And she's like, oh, y'all want unrestricted funding because the Barnes & Noble was restricted. So let me give you some general operating funds. And it's multi-year. And because you expect it every year on your birthday, you look for that birthday card. And I'm like, come on, people, it's not hard. Or how many of us have, you know, the young family member that went to college and we all are like, here's $20 or here's some money for your books or, you know, or something. And then the young person comes home and um, they, they come home at the end and at the holidays and they say, uh, and then what do you say? You say, how was school? That's a report, right? Like, come on, folks, this is not hard. So at Satterberg, what we've been able to do is hire people. So I was the fourth person hired and then um, and the first person of color. But every single hire after that has been a person of color. Because I, I didn't want to be by myself too long, you know, but we have nine people on staff right now. And out of that nine, three folks are, are white folks. And, um, and it's not just that we have six people of color, six BIPOC folks, but these are all folks from community. So we also weren't looking for folks that had a background in philanthropy because coming from communities of color, we all do philanthropy. We all 
have, have to pitch in for the niece's rent. We all have to help my aunt buy her meds or it's just what we do. And we didn't know that white folks were calling this philanthropy. We're like, that's just, that's just my cousin. <laughs> it's just, you know, before there was no funny and all these other things. So philanthropy is not a hard thing to learn and, and just hire people like our folks are someone ran a nonprofit. Um, someone is an attorney and an artist and an organizer. Someone, you know, but then, and then within that, so these are all hello, like really just brilliant folks. Um, that come from a community and from families that have poured into them. Um, so they know what it is like that to give back. It's just in them to do. So they don't look at it as they're not coming into it with a charity mindset mm -hmm. you know, in the way that philanthropy has offered me to mm -hmm. for all its time. Mm -hmm. I, I love that. And, and I'm glad you put in piece of, like, not coming from a charity mindset because in, in what philanthropy is being asked right now, the philanthropic sector is to move away from doing charity or being a savior. It's really, you know, releasing the funds and, and trusting that the community know what their needs are and can utilize the resources accordingly. Um, thank you. Yeah. Okay. So you, um, you, you, you mentioned something in the story about the way distributing money out. It's almost like having it. And you, you used this phrase before about the community check. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you, can you just dive a little bit deeper into that? Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I think about how like, well, you know, Black, Indigenous, and people of color have a harder time getting ahead is because we're, we, we're not like just saving our funds. And Edgar, who you mentioned earlier, Edgar Villanueva talks about the community check and decolonizing wealth, where it's like one of, if one of us, you know, in the family has a job, I, you know, I look at like some of my colleagues in, in foundations and oftentimes it may be white folks. And, um, and they're like maxing out their 401ks. And I'm like, okay, I got to pay this person's rent. I have this person's rent and then this person's kids tuition here. And, it, I, and you know, and I remember uh, me and my boss, Sarah, still talk about this to this day, but there was this one time our checks were late. <laughs> and I, she was like, you'll never let me forget that. But I was, I called and I texted her and I was like, Hey, uh, my check's not in my account. And she was like, oh man, let me find out what happened. And, and I was just like, I, three people need their rent paid. Like, this, <laughs> this isn't just me, um, you know? And, uh, and she was like, I know, because I heard from the other black person on staff. So it was like, we both were like, uh-oh, um, I need the money. Where's the money? Um, you know, but, but this idea of like, that we're not we're not individuals. We didn't get here by ourselves. And whatever family and community needs, we're going to do it. And I think some of us have to build some healthy boundaries around that. Um, you can't give away everything. Yeah. And I think, but because so many of us come from maybe some, you know, just just poverty in many cases. So we're not. Uh, I mean, there there is a piece where, of course, we don't want to go back there. But I kind of think, you know, I lived in homeless shelters as a kid and 
they're probably maybe they're really nice now. I mean, I, maybe there's been some changes and, you know, and people have to remind me, yeah, you may have lived in homeless shelters, but your children have it. So you need to stop giving all of your money away. You're going to go back there. <laughs> exactly. And it's a cycle. So when people think like, how come y'all just can't get ahead? Everyone else is able to do it because we're taking care of everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, we're taking care of each other. It's, it's our way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that, Cece. And, and just so you know, you're not alone. Like I, I, I also lived in a homeless shelter, you know, especially after my mother, uh, my mother's death, you know, so um, it, it's tough. It's tough. And we have, you know, yeah, we have to take care. We have to take care of community, you know, and it doesn't make sense. It really doesn't make sense for me to hoard like a couple of million dollars and have my nieces and my nephews like struggling and trying to figure out how to pay their student loan and, you right. know, and, and be shackled by student loans. Right. Because, I mean, the more I'm talking, I recently had a conversation with a, a really amazing, beautiful young woman who offers a lot in the community and she's saddled by $80,000 in student loans. And she's just like, Victoria, I can't, I can't even like give the gift that I feel inside myself to give because I'm shackled by this debt. You know, the student loans I've, I've done forbearances and deferments so much that I keep thinking someone's going to save us. <laughs> so I got to use them. I need that money. I can't afford to, you know, pay these off right now. I, if I just keep pushing it off and the interest is going up and, you know, and I think they start back in September and I'm already uh, like grieving that money that somehow <laughs> they always find too, no matter how many, what bank I move to or, whatever, the money just leaves out of my account. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, hey. Yeah, they have a sophisticated system. But <laughs> really sophisticated. <laughs> but, you know, um, here we are in 2021. And um, let me see, I think, let me just look at the time here. Oh my gosh, we only have five minutes. Um just give me one minute because I was going to jump into another piece and that is around like Satterberg also funds like work around environment issues. Right. And so that's really, and so the intersection of, 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 you know, black and indigenous folks, you know, some environmental issue is really um, critical to look at. And so, you know, when you think about all of your, your portfolio for funding and you're looking about the land back. Uh, let's go back. Let's go. Th- let's go there for a moment to the land. Yes, um, land. Land is so powerful. It is so powerful, and it's been used. Um, I mean, that is how wealth is been built, and what we have access to, and what we don't. Um, so when I like the sustainable environment piece in Satterberg, like I think in the earlier days, it was really around land conservation, you know, like partnering with land trusts. Um, how do we make sure we purchase this land and protect it? Um, but now we're thinking about it more broadly and thinking about the environmental movement, environmental justice. Like we shouldn't be doing environmental work that's not connected to social justice. 
um, it should overlap. So it's not about just purchasing land to protect it and save it. But also within that, um, thinking about the environment, how do we purchase land so that people can thrive and, and have their own land? Businesses, small nonprofits can have their own land and have their own building. Um, you know, how do we just, how do we invest into organizations that are doing work around anti-displacement for many of the communities experiencing gentrification now? I think for some folks, when we say this is our environmental work, um, like the environmental violence that happens to communities when we're displaced, um, because you can't talk about environmental justice without addressing the displacement. Because oftentimes people say, like, you should catch the bus to work. You should ride your bike to work, um, you know, because you're polluting the air when you drive. But when I was displaced and I had to move 33 miles outside of the city, out away from where my job is, mm-hmm. I can't catch the bus to work. So that's for certain folks that can walk and ride their bike to work. I'm not able to do that. So you can't not talk about gentrification and displacement without talking about the implications on the environment. You know, I mean, I, and and to and also, it's like environmental work has been led historically by white-led organizations. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Cardiz Gardner Glazer and host Victoria Santos. And the truth is, for many communities of color, because we're super tight on pinching pennies. And, and and conservation, like I will say, like my grandmother, my mother are some of the most conserving energy people I know. Like I can't remember how many times we can't run in and out of, out of the house um, because you can't let the good air out or the cold air out. Um, how often you better turn the light off when you leave the room. You recycle every single piece of oil. You wash it off, and if the foil is in the dish rack, like it's a plate dry enough to be reused. So it's like we don't need any lessons in like recycling or or conserving energy because we don't get to take long showers and things like that. It's just the way it's set up. Um, but we do have to talk about the role that displacement is is playing on the environment, and you can't separate those two. So I'm hoping that with our environmental work goal forward and we're going to start having some conversations and trainings in that area um, with staff and the board to do together to really think more broadly beyond conserving you know partnering with land trusts to conserve land um how do we return land so that folks can reclaim um like that's the real shift and and the real change wow thank you so much Cece. thank you so much for for sharing that um yeah, this this land right now is. I mean, I know that you you moved from you were in Seattle, right? And the, mm-hmm. you know, in South Seattle, where most of the people of color live and the black people live, um, this Superfund site, like in South Seattle and further in those areas, and so there's also the the physical um, illnesses that come from all of that, and the right. And then you moved to Detroit, and you know. <laughs> And Detroit has its own, you know, issues with a lot of the companies, those automakers that have left 
and then everything went into decay. And, you know, and also there's a lot of areas that are also polluted, but Victoria, thankfully, is having a, a resurgence, right? And that the art is really um, part of that resurgence. Um, but you're in, in Detroit. Just tell us a little bit, just before we, we turn it over to the audience, tell us a little bit about, about Detroit for you. Yes. Oh my gosh. Detroit, I would say, has not only saved my life, but my family's, like, really. Um, Seattle had become so heavy on our spirit. Like, I mean, my son, I had a teenage son, he was 15, and just sad to go to school every day because of what he was experiencing. As maybe one of, he was the only Black boy in his class um, in 10th grade and had been at the school since 5th grade, the only Black boy until we moved to Detroit in 10th grade. And I would say, well, do you want to change schools? And he's like, where? Anywhere I go in Seattle, okay, maybe there'll be four Black people in my class. But the city had changed so much with the gentrification that Black folks were really displaced and not in the city anymore. So it, it was like moving schools for him. He's like, I'd rather stay here. I have a lot of support from the administration. But I just have to deal with not seeing people that look like me. Um, and they had kind of resigned themselves to that. And, um, and it was just, I mean, and I knew how I felt as an adult. But as a kid growing up in Seattle in the same neighborhood that my kids lived in, I always had kids that looked like me. I had grownups that looked like me in the community. So when I, because I would, at first my son, you know, he's sad or maybe he's crying. And I'm like, boy, please, I deal with that all the time at work. And he's like, but you're an adult. You're mm-hmm. an adult. You didn't have that when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, you're absolutely right. So we all kind of, I made one visit to Detroit in 2012. And it was like abandoned, dark. We stayed downtown. And it wasn't pretty, honestly, but stopping and having conversations with people like on the street or in every store in that city, the energy is so vibrant and contagious. It is, I was like, there's something magical about this city and people don't know about it. It's like the secret. And even just having conversations with Detroiters, I was like, do y'all know what they're saying about you? And they were like, what are they saying? Um, you know, and um, Detroit, we moved there three years ago and because we just could not afford to stay in Seattle. And we were in a situation where, OK, we could sell our house in Seattle and make a profit, but we still have to find a place to live. So we, we still couldn't afford, you know, even with the profit to buy something else in the city. So Detroit has allowed us to just live a good life, like to be in an area where I can see Black folks all day. And the other thing I didn't bargain for, think of, is that what it would be like for, for not just me, but for my kids to be around white folks that are used to seeing Black people mm-hmm. all day. It is like my the energy in my body, the heat in my body changes. Um, when in Seattle, I'm carrying everything, being in philanthropy, I'm walking into a room, and folks are like, oh, and then we're sitting down and they're like, hey, is, I'm like, can we start the meeting? They're like, well, as soon as everyone gets here, I'm like, it's me. Wait, wait, they're like, no, but <laughs> yeah, like, where's, where's the important person or the, 
you know, so every, and I remember I would open the door in Seattle to solicitors and they're like, oh, they're like, hi, are the owners home? I'm like, and I live in the city in Seattle. So Detroit, the same thing. And we have a larger home there because it's Detroit, it's beautiful brick homes. Um, and I open the door and the guy is like, hi, we do masonry work and we've done a couple houses on your street. And I'm like, um, you sure you want to talk to me? And he's like, it's your house, right? <laughs> so I'm like, it is my house. But it's like that whole, it, it's taken just a weight off of us where we get to just be out in the world and be ourselves. So um the culture, the people are beautiful. The city is like one of the most beautiful cities. Like people are like, I can't be in Detroit. I don't want to be landlocked. I'm like landlocked. I have water right outside my house. There's a huge river. I can see Canada. I mean, it's, it is a beautiful city and it's a huge city too. I'm getting used to that geographic spread, but Detroit is, when people say, why do you move here? Are you from here? I'm like, no, we didn't know anyone. We just were like, why not? Why not? We got to take some some chances. And now I am able to pay my mortgage, to pay other family members rent. I can buy gas and food in the same month, Victoria. Like, I don't have to, like, I'll pay half of this bill now, half of this I mean, we can thrive and be in a beautiful place and feel like we're a part, we're part of something that's bigger than us. And, and, and respecting the history that this city has played in the making of this country, like from the Underground Railroad, it was the last stop before um, enslaved people crossed into Canada. Canada's right across the bridge. Um, you can see it. And, um, you know, and then the great migration or building a black middle class where you could work someplace for 30 years and put your kids through college and buy a home. Um, innovation of cars, like all of that is Detroit. So to see the richness of this city, of this state and everything that it's built for this country and then for the country to just say, we're done with you. Um, we're not going to save you. And But people want to swoop in and like buy the art from the... Uh, museum, um, you know, they're like, why is this in Detroit? This doesn't need to be in Detroit. Let's, who, they don't need this. Mm. It's just, so it's like, respect the city. You have to respect Detroit because after everything that they've been through, the resilience and the strength and just the swag of the city is, gives me energy all day long, all mm. day long. Mm, I can feel the love coming through. <laughs> you, you, you know, what you just said right now, you're going to have a whole bunch of folks wanting to move to Detroit. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want it to become Seattle. <laughs> I'm definitely coming to visit, though, so you know. You have to. <laughs> but, okay, let's go ahead and open it up and, uh, and turn it over to see if we have some questions. Um, let see. The first one is... Uh, from Deb Cohen, and it's any advice on how to engage people with financial discomfort, but who don't, but who aren't super wealthy, have family foundation, etc., in conversations about wealth redistribution as a necessary component of healing white supremacy culture. Whoa, 
That's a great question. I know, Victoria, you have some ideas on this. I mean, I think some of the first steps, like if, if folks can, it's the charity mindset, remove yourself from it. And how is, is there someone you know, a Black or Indigenous person that you can just give some money to? Like literally Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, whatever, right? And just be like, you know what? Here's $2,500. And it's not about what will they use it on? Will they pay their rent? Will they buy food? Get that out of your mind and that discomfort. And no one's asked for it. So you don't have an ass and um, there isn't any immediate need that you need to know of to make you feel good about giving money. So it's not about you feeling good. You just do it and no one knows about it. Mm -hmm. That's the test. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree with all of that. And I would add that, um, you know, we were in an experiment with a group of white women uh, with resources and um, they decided that they, you know, they, they actually were in a process of, and they're still in this process of learning um, about white supremacy culture and how that has impacted people of color, but also how that impacted them as well. And in the, in the way that it, it, it formed the culture, right? And, uh, and so within that, they decided to allocate uh, a, a certain amount of funds and rather than them deciding how they were going to allocate the funds, they had the um, black body women decide how those funds were going to be allocated. And it's been a journey. It's been a year, you know, like a two, we're in three years now. Three years. Mm-hmm. Three years process. But in the second, the first year when it happened, I could visibly see the white women changing uh, and releasing some of the tension um, around the money and, and actually healing themselves. Because the thing about hoarding wealth is that it there's all these narratives, all these stories that get told about how you're supposed to be. And in some ways, it actually paralyzes the individual. And, um, and so these women have been having to look at not only the relationship of themselves in relationship to money, but also the relationship in their family, the relationship with their husband, um, how does patriarchy comes into this? It's, it's, it's been a super um, just transformative experience. So it, it takes individual to, to commit to self-learning um, and, and to continue to release and let go. Okay. Yeah. Yes, and there's, yeah, there's a question. Okay, I, it might be perceived as insulting. Is there a way to give that will be received in this generous spirit? I would, I mean, like what Victoria is talking about also is, I mean, we, for the Black women in, in this um, process, we had to try to figure out what it was like to receive because that just doesn't happen. And there's a lesson in that as well and some learning and building our own capacity around receiving but um but the way because i've done it if i get a raise at work or some money i wasn't expecting i pass it on immediately and the way i frame it is you know i've been giving a blessing and i'm sharing it that's it you know and i think um and in 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 this case this is like a form of reparations of reparative action 
where it's like, like, what have I done? It's because of the systems in place that some people are able to amass different forms of wealth and other people are not. So, so treating it as like, because that's the thing, right? It's not a gift. It's not a gift. Uh, it's, uh, a it's a return. So it is like, it, it has to be in the spirit of, it is my pleasure to return these resources to you. Right. It's it's not this isn't a grant. This isn't a gift. This isn't because of something you did for me. It, it's not because of any of that. It's because of the history of this country. And it's my responsibility in a way to return the resources to you as an individual. On a, this is a small scale, but I have to start somewhere and see how that feels within your body. Because there's so many changes, I think, happening just from the act of returning, whatever amount it is. Yeah, and um, there's, uh, it, I think Lynn Twist and Orlin Bishop um, both do a lot of um, work, have done a lot of work around the energy of money. And so those two, I think I will recommend that um, people either like look them up on YouTube or uh, or get their books and, uh, and learn a little bit more about it because um, definitely money has, money has a lot of energy, a lot of baggage. Um, there's a question here about why is Canada significant for you? Racism and misogyny and white supremacy are alive and well here. Genocide of the indigenous people, uh, indigenous people happening here. So I think this for this question comes from when you were saying that um, you could see Canada from Detroit. I don't, I don't. Oh, Canada isn't significant to me. I'm saying Canada as in. Um, for enslaved people, that was where you crossed the line to be free, to liberation, and not be owned any longer um, by a body. So that is what's, that to me is what's significant about Detroit's proximity to Canada and the role that it played in the history of the country. Oh, Canada. Oh, please. Yeah, Canada doesn't get any passes. Uh, no, not, no. not in any way. This was a, it's a geography proximity thing that I can, I'm trying to, um, people know that like Michigan is close to Canada, but they don't know until they're actually in Detroit. And then we go to dinner across the border and we have dinner in Windsor, Canada and go home. And it's only 15 minutes from my house. So that's what I was trying to share. So thanks for the clarifying question. Okay. And here's another one. It says, also, can you share info about Black Ivy Manor? Can BIPOC artists apply directly? Thank you. Yes. Um, so Black Ivy Manor is something we've been working on for a while. And um, and it's actually my home. And we host folks um, to come and spend their time there. So as soon as I move out my adult child, um, it is, it is open, um, but really we want it to be a space. Um, and we've, we've posted a lot of folks there um, over the three years we've been in Detroit, but we see it as a way to get people to come to the city. Uh, you know, we just put people up, spend some time there um, and share your, your art. Are you an author? Are you an artist? Do you want to share some works? Um, and we invite people over and just do things kind of old school. Unlike um, during the Harlem Renaissance, where an artists were invited over into people's homes, and um, and we actually talk about like the art and we share it, and then um, make sure, and then how do we get folks what they need to be able to do the work? 
and explore their work without having to rely on, um, you know, getting certain fellowships and, and grants and things like that to sustain themselves. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Cece. I think, let's see. I think that's all the questions we have. Um, what would you like to share? What, what question do you have or like what statement do you have that I didn't get to, to tap into? Is this something you'd like to share? Well, we talked about a lot. I mean, I think, um, I mean, for me, this has just been a really great conversation and a great opportunity to reflect. And, um, and I think, and, and I love the questions and just like around the clarity of things too. Because I definitely, so thank you so much for asking that question about Canada, because I would not want to leave people with the impression that I have family that lives in Canada, and my brother-in-law was the commissioner of the Canadian Football League, and he is a Black man from Queens, New York, and he, oh, it was a difficult job for him when people say, oh, there's no racism in Canada, and until that Black guy became the commissioner, they were like, what's going on? <laughs> um, and all the hate mail and everything that he received. So yeah, we're under no illusions there. So I just, I appreciated that question because I would not want to leave with folks having that impression. Um, but I think, um, I don't know, Victoria, is there anything else you want to touch on? Um, okay, this is close it out with this one. I'm going to go a little heavy here on you. Um, what brings you despair? In this oh my gosh. You know what brings, okay, this is going to sound really, I don't know. What brings me despair is happiness. Happiness? Happiness, because it's temporary. Um, I think as a Black woman, trying to find our joy and exist in it is the scariest thing because I do fear that the moment that I feel immense joy, something's going to happen. And there's nothing more anxious in my body around when something really cool or really big is happening for me. That's when I feel like I'm going to die because good things don't happen for us. Um, so often things are snatched from up under us. The other shoe is going to drop. Um, will I live to see it? Um, because that is, so happiness for me is terrifying. Um, if I feel happy for too long, I'm like, uh-oh, mm -hmm. I better cut that out because if I have too much joy in my heart, it's going to be snatched away. I'm I'm going to have to deal with the tragedy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I hear that. I, I and someone posted saying that you're not alone. Um, and and it's true. I I feel that sometimes as well, especially during this past you know two years that it's just everything has been so intense and so heightened um, that you just don't know when something's going to strike. Um, okay, then, and the other coin of that is what brings you hope? Young people. I'm not talking about that fufu hope. I'm talking about the hope, hope. Young people. Every time I'm in a room with young people, their energy, and when I hear them talk about the changes they want to see and what they want to do, 
like this generation is just so different. Like I think we were, you know, radical and brazen and but these kids, I I feel like we're gonna be okay. Some days I'm not sure with the TikTok and every you know, I'm like, oh, this is who's gonna be running stuff. <laughs> But then, you know, when I have conversations with, I have three kids, they're 29, 19, and 14. And when I have conversations with them, I'm like, we might be okay. They might, you know, the kids in their generation might take care of us. (laughs) Oh, you know, but anytime I'm in a room, I get to be on a call with young folks. Uh, like the Equity Summit, you know, we had young folks from Creative Justice. And I was just like, yep, we about to be good because mm-hmm. they got us. Mm-hmm. So anytime I can be in there and just get some of that energy yeah. from them, I feel I feel inspired. And it's the adults where I'm like, oh, damn, we're screwed. <laughs> and then the kids, I'm like, Oh, I can take a breath. I'll be able to retire and y'all got, I can pass the baton, pass the mic. We'll be okay. I hope. (laughs) We will. We'll be okay. We'll be okay. I see the way you raise your children and not only that, the way you also mentor, you know, like, like the young staff person in at Satterberg, like Julie, and I see how you like lift her up and, you know, I just want to thank you so much, Cece, for everything that you're doing. And I want to tell you that what brings me hope is to have people like you and to have doing the work and be out there speaking truth to power. Thank you so much for this conversation. And I wish you well, my sister. And please, please rest up because you definitely put out a lot this past week. So. Thank you so much for having me, Victoria. This has been just a lot of fun. I love talking to you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Bye. Take good care. Bye, you too. Thank you. Bye. Ladies, thank you so much for being with us today. It was a wonderful conversation. Um, And the first conversation in our Money as Medicine series. Um, the topic of reparative philanthropy is so important and it's so hopeful. So thanks for all you both are doing um, to help us understand these issues and to move in the direction of decolonizing philanthropy and reparative philanthropy. Yeah, it's wonderful. Again, we'll have the recordings in um, our media outlets in a week or two. And we hope you'll take a look at our website and join us for our next event uh, next Friday or in the future. Victoria Santos and Cardis Gardner-Glazier, thank you for being with us at the New School at Commonweal. See you next time, everybody. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Cardis Gardner-Glazier and host Victoria Santos. Thank you for listening to TNS, The New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Jeremy Cohen. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.